Well, good evening, everybody. Hope everybody had a good weekend so far. And getting ready for the rest of this work week that uh, or some of you had the great fortune of being retired. So I hope you have a blessed week in whatever the Lord uh, gives you the opportunity to do. Just want to remind you that if you have prayer concerns or if you have um, any questions, just put them in the comments and we'll definitely pray for your prayer concerns and answer any questions you have as uh, as best we can as we can get to those uh, to those questions. And uh, don't forget, if you <clears throat> are watching it on Facebook, uh, you can share it with your friends or whatever. But also go check out the podcast because it'll be there as well. RK Ministries, you can find that anywhere podcasts are. So uh, just go listen to that, like it, share it, and get the word out. And uh, so let me just uh, say a prayer. We're going to get into Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. It's the letter to the church at uh, Pergamum today. So let me just say a prayer to get us started and then we'll get into our study. Father, we thank you for the day. Thank you for the opportunity we've had already to worship you and just pray, Lord, that as we uh, study your word tonight that you will uh, give us insight and wisdom, that we would have better understanding of who you are and what it is you're doing in this world and how we ought to live in light of that. And just pray, Father, for those uh, concerns that are on the hearts and minds of everyone that is listening, Lord, that you would give them peace and comfort that you would uh, bring about healing that you'd uh, minister to whatever need is that they have father and that you will show yourself strong and those that are lost you will draw them to you and those that are saved lord that you will uh, encourage us and challenge us to be about your your business father and it's in jesus name that we pray <clears throat> amen all right so tonight we're on the <clears throat> excuse me the third uh letter to the third church in asia minor this is the letter to Pergamum, and if you remember our little kind of kind of horseshoe semicircle uh, route that these churches are on, uh, we started at the southern and uh, western uh, most church on the route uh, near the Aegean Sea. We've been going up the coast, and this week we've reached to the very top uh, <clears throat> of our route with Pergamum. It is the the northernmost church that uh, th these letters went to. And then we'll start our trek inward and, and southward as we continue these with the last four uh, churches that we will encounter. Now, Pergamum is about 40 miles north of Smyrna, and it's about 10 miles inland from the uh, GNC. And uh, Pliny said that of Pergamum that it is by far the most distinguished city in Asia. So again, you can see, we, we've kind of seen this recurring theme with all of these cities. They, they have a sense of prominence, obviously, because they're on this trade route, they're on this postal route. So they're very prominent key cities in the, in the culture and in the uh, economy or economic aspect of Asia Minor in, Asia Minor in the first century. And uh, per, or, excuse me, Pergamum is was considered to be the uh, the political seat of Rome in uh, in the east. You know, you had Rome in the west over in Italy, and then you have Pergamum, who was established as uh, the Roman seat of government, if you will, in in the east. And it was built on this uh, cone-shaped kind of hill that was about a. I say hill, it's, I guess it's a mountain of sorts, it's about a thousand feet high, so it, it, had, it, was, it was a just a grand view <clears throat> as you came into this city, and as such, the, the name Pergamum literally means citadel, and so it had this fortified feel to it, uh, if you will. Uh, there, it depends on who you read, there's some that say there's anywhere from 120 to 200,000 people in population as it relates to Pergamum in in the first century. So again, you know, significantly large city in in that uh, particular day. It probably was uh, known for, I guess, its educational status. It, it would be not to press too much of our, our modern uh, context onto it, but it, it would be like a 
a college city of our day. They 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 had a lot of uh, uh, literature in there. As a matter of fact, they had a library that uh, was claimed to have had over two hundred thousand volumes of books or literature inside that library. So again, very prominent, uh, industrious, educational city. Some have even said that parchment probably was invented in Pergamum. And you'll know <clears throat> that, um, uh, I lost my train of thought, so we move on. Uh, worship center, uh, worship centered around four pagan, uh, deities, uh, four pagan cults. One would have been Zeus. Uh, one was Athena. One was Dionysus. And the other was Asclepius. And obviously, most people know Zeus and these, these um, Greek slash Roman uh, gods. The Romans adopted a lot of the Greek gods, but probably one of the, the other than Zeus, the patron god of uh, such uh, in Pergamum was probably Asclepius. And Asclepius was the god of healing. And. Uh, he had a serpent that was associated to him. And, of course, we see that even in our modern-day uh, medical symbols with the serpent and the and the staff. You know, some people think that may have come from Moses in the wilderness, but more than likely it probably comes from uh, Asclepius. And, of course, we know the biblical background of the serpent, at least in, in, the, in the Christian mind, the Jewish mind, we think about the idea of the serpent when it relates to the Bible. We always go back to Satan. And Jesus is going to make a statement in this text today that tells us that these people live where the throne of Satan is. And maybe that has some, you know, has some bearing on this, this symbol that would have been recognized in the city and the Christian uh, that were there would have understood that reference to the serpent as it relates to Satan, because we know all these um, pagan deities are ultimately uh, satanic in their nature, and Satan underlines all the false gods in this world. And uh, another thing, and again, this is common with several of the the gods that are there. Zeus, I think, is is called this. Even even the emperors are called this in in the highlight of uh, emperor worship or the emperor cult. Uh, savior. Uh, so Asclepius Asclepius was thought of as Soter or Savior. And so, as you can see, what kind of pressure? What kind of uh, uh, difficulty that would bring to believers that were living there who, who understood that there's only one Savior, and that Savior is Jesus Christ. And, of course, you've got these gods that are all around them, uh, and here one blatantly claiming to be Savior, as it you know relates especially to this issue of uh, his, his identity as the God of healing. <coughs> and... Uh, <coughs> um, there was also a prominent uh, Zeus's temple was on on the top of this mountain that we talked about that was a thousand feet high. And another aspect of this mountain is as you moved up to it, coming coming into the city, this mountain would look like a throne. So is as it were, Zeus, you know, in this sense, seated on his throne in this place. And so again, that might be. Another reason that Jesus used this reference in this letter about where Satan's throne <clears throat> is. And these people living there, they would understand this symbology. They would, they would be looking at this city and they say, yep, I, I see where this is going. I understand what Jesus uh, is saying. And again, not to, not to leave them out, but the emperor cult uh, was there as well. The emperor worship, uh, as a matter of fact, Pergamum was one of the first cities in Asia Minor to build a temple to uh, for emperor worship, and so they were a temple guardian in that in that respect. And so we've seen over and over again in every one of these cities this consistent theme of paganism. One with all these foreign gods that the people who lived there were expected to worship, and we've seen the 
emperor cult, you know, every one of these cities in some way, some form, some fashion. So again, you have this pressure on the church to conform to the age and to bow their knee, not only to these pagan gods, but to bow their knee to the emperor as, as God. And then also, uh, there is still this underlying pressure from the trade guilds that are there in this city. The trade guilds, like in every, every city we've seen so far, the trade guilds are there. And to be a part of those trade guilds, to be able to be a part of that occupation group, you would have to be a part of, take part in the feast and festivals that they uh, engaged in, which would have been part of this pagan worship, which would have included eating the meat that was sacrificed to idols. It would include uh, sexual immorality with temple prostitution and all those kinds of things. And so, as you can see already, that outside pressure on the church is there in this city, just like it has been in the other two cities. Now, this church is like Ephesus uh, in in a sense, I think Ephesus is, we, we saw some internal pressures that they were able to root out because of their strong stand on doctrinal solidarity and doctrinal truth. And we're going to, we're going to see in this, in this text today, uh, that there's some internal pressure in the church of Pergamum as well. So not only do you have people in the outside, the world out there, the spirit of the age, uh, where Satan's throne is, if you will, where the, where the government has established its foothold, if you will, and they're pressing in on the church to conform to the spirit of the age. And now you have these false teachers who have slipped into the church, if you will, and they are trying to tempt the church to cave into or give into the spirit of the age to to, to give in to to get along right <coughs> in the spirit of the age and so we'll talk more about that as we go through our text today so that brings us to verse number 12 Verse number 12, again, the, every letter begins the same way. It has this description of the risen Lord, the one writing this letter to the church. He says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write. And then the Lord gives a description of himself. And this description, if you'll remember, comes from the very first vision that John has in chapter 1 of the church. And it always relates to some aspect or some principle that the Lord is trying to portray or something that's going on in this city, and they would understand what the Lord was talking about. And so he describes himself in this passage as the sharp, two-edged sword. And so if you think about it, and, and most people you read will at least tie this idea in, because we know the two-edged sword, if we think about Hebrews, the two-edged sword comes to, to mind about the the truth of God's word, right? He, he's the ultimate truth. And so one aspect of it could be, hey, they, they have this uh, um, educational aspect to them. They have this great, big, huge library that would, you know, house all of this, these books and information. And, uh, they would espouse this wisdom of the world, if you will. And in one sense, Jesus is the ultimate, uh, wisdom, right? We, as, as in our church, we went through Proverbs, the first nine chapters of Proverbs a few months ago. And we learned that Christ, or that this ultimate wisdom, the only one and only true wisdom ultimately comes from God and Christ has been make, made for us wisdom. So that wisdom comes from God via Christ to those who are believers. So there's only one true wisdom in this world, and that is is uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, the revelation of God. And that, that could be one aspect of this idea of this two-edged sword. <coughs> but another aspect of this two-edged sword is we're going through Romans right now. Sunday mornings, and when we get to Romans chapter 13, we're going to find out that God has ordained governments, and God has ordained those who are in power, and God has given them the uh, power to yield or wield the sword in the sense that they punish wrongdoers, and uh, and so not. And we'll talk more about that on Sunday morning when we get to Revelation 13. But they, the governments don't always do that rightly. As, as we know, uh, in our day, just like they understood in Rome's day. So uh, God is coming to say, hey, uh, no matter what the circumstances are around you, 
no matter what the government is pressing you to do, you know, no matter what these people on the inside are pressing you to do, I am the one with the real, true, double-edged sword, the sword of judgment, if you will. And so, he is he is king of kings and he is lord of lords, right? We learn that in uh, God's word. We ultimately see that uh, at the end of Revelation, in, in Revelation chapter 19. We see the manifestation of that in a very clear and dynamic way. But Jesus has already made that known to us, right? That the kingdom of God is at hand whenever he came in uh, in uh, to being in, in the sense that he was he came to earth he, he stepped out of heaven and stepped into humanity uh, the kingdom of God was at hand in that moment he he is the king of kings and lord of lords right now he is enthroned in the heavenlies and so he's the one that wields the true sword of justice uh, if you will and so in that sense he identifies himself in that in that way so that men you know, like the apostle said, who should we listen to you, you know, you guys, or should we listen to God? Well, Jesus is letting them know, Hey, you ought to listen to me because I, I wield the true sword of authority, not Rome. And then that leads us to verse 13. He, and again, usually in these letters, we have the introduction of the, the writer, Jesus Christ, and some aspect of the vision. And then, uh, as we have here in chapter thir- in verse thirteen, uh, he gives them a uh, commendation, if you will. That these are the things I know that are good. And then, in a minute, he's going to give them a warning because he tells them the things that he sees that that are bad. And uh, verse thirteen starts off with, "I know where you dwell." And we had to stop and pause right there for just a moment um, because it's always encouraging. To remind ourselves, especially as believers, that God knows where we are. There's not a person in this world that God doesn't know where you are. There's not a believer in this world that God doesn't know where you are, who you are, and what circumstances in which you are living your life. There's nothing that's happening in your life that is unknown to God. Now, again, I don't, I'm not saying that, that that makes easy living. You know, it's easy preaching, just not easy living sometimes. But it ought to bring comfort that if I'm going through a difficult time, it hadn't escaped God that I'm going through a difficult time, okay? Now, you heard what we, you remember what we heard last week, right? The Lord knew where they were as well, right? And the Lord told them, hey, some of you are about to go to prison and some of you are going to die. And his encouragement was, I know what's happening. I need you to be faithful even unto death. Why? Because he's the sovereign Lord. And if you die, guess what? He, he will bring you back to life. So the worst the world can do is take, take your life. But the Lord knows where you are. He knew where these uh, Pergamum Christians were. He knew the circumstances in which they were living. And he's going to give them encouragement in light of that. And he's going to give them a challenge uh, and, and some correction and a warning in light of what's going on in their in their context. And, you know, we know from the book of Hebrews that the Lord chastened those whom he loves, right? So he's bringing about this chastening in their life to, to get them back on tri- uh, track. This is a second church. We're going to see the Lord tells them to repent, just like he told Ephesus to repent. You remember Ephesus? Uh, they, these churches are almost... Uh, um, they're similar, but uh, mirror opposites of one another because Ephesus, they were strong doctrinally. They rooted out these false teachers that were among them, but they, they, they left that first love, that passion for the gospel, that passion for Christ, that passion for sharing the word to, to the world and sharing the love of Christ among the brethren. And God told them to repent and return to that first love. Well, these, what we're going to find out about these uh, Pergamum Christians is, uh, while they were faithful, they didn't root out the they didn't root out the false teachers. So anyway, he says in verse thirteen, "I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is." And again, we've talked about that. <clears throat> excuse me already. Uh, and some people think, you know, hey, this is part of that emperor cult, emperor worship aspect that relates to the throne of Satan. But in one sense, I think it incorporates all of that because, like we've said, Satan is ultimately behind all the evil that's in this world. And um, Satan is behind what we call the spirit of this age. 
And so in that sense, uh, Satan has emissaries at, at, at a minimum in every one of these cities. But here, I think because of the political importance of Pergamum, that the Lord describes it as the place where Satan has set up his throne. And from that place, he rules. And so, you know, in reality, Satan probably had two thrones, if you think about it that way. One in Rome in the west and one here in Pergamum in the east, where he ruled and reigned uh, as the evil dictator that he is uh, waging this spiritual warfare that we find ourselves in even even today. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, yet, in, and, and the implication is, in spite of the fact that you live where Satan's headquarters are, <coughs> yet you hold fast my name. And again, the, the truth, the point is that they hold fast the name of Christ in the sense that they understand he is the Lord of Lords and the king of kings and they will not bow the knee to the emperor cult they will not say uh uh caesar is lord uh, they will not offer a pinch of incense to caesar they will not get involved with these pagan idols and and these uh feasts and festivals that go along with these pagan idols they hold fast to the name of the lord and they do not if you look at the second phrase and they did not deny his faith or my faith so they were faithful to the lord even in the midst of this pressure that was coming to them from the outside and then the lord gives an example remember last week i think we talked about a uh, a martyr in 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 last week's letter this week the lord gives us a a name of a martyr. Now he didn't mention the martyr last week. We found out in the into in, in the background information about the martyr. But this is a martyr that took place in their lifetime. And the Lord says, even in, in the in the face of this one who died for his faithfulness, you have stayed true. You have not yielded. It says, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So again, Antipas in their midst was killed because of his his faithfulness to Christ. And there's not a whole lot out there about Antipas. There is one or two places where it alludes to him and there's this uh, one statement about he may have been, uh, at least how he could have been killed. And it is that he may have been boiled to death in a brazen bowl. And so I'll assume boiled in, in oil probably of some some sort, but that would be a very tough way to die. But why did he do it? He, he died because of his faithfulness to Christ and his unwillingness to yield, to, to bow the knee to Caesar as Lord, and his unwillingness to bow the knee to all these pagan deities, his unwillingness to conform to the spirit of the age and the pressure of the culture around him. And he died because of his faith in Christ. And these Pergamum Christians followed his example of faithfulness in that matter. They held fast to the name of Jesus Christ, but they were not without fault because there was not only pressure from the outside, there was pressure on the inside of this church. People had crept in, as it were, and they were trying to cause these Christians to conform to the spirit of the age. He tells us in, <clears throat> excuse me, in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. You have some, and then, you know, I highlighted that word in the text because the implication is not all, but there are some among them who hold to the teaching of Balaam. And then he gives an explanation of that, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Now, you, you can find uh, Balaam in Numbers uh, 25, 24, and then a little bit later on in Numbers, I think uh, 32 maybe. But Balaam, if you remember, was the seer who was uh, hired by Balak 
to curse Israel because Israel was coming through, uh, you know, the, the promised land and Balak uh, was uh, concerned, to say the least, about Israel and what God was doing in Israel. And so he hired Balaam to curse Israel. And so it was three occurrences when Balaam was, he, he was, uh, Balak asked him to curse Israel, but every time he asked him to curse Israel, uh, a blessing came out of his mouth. But Balaam had actually told Balak that, hey, uh, you, you can give me all you want to give me, but I'm only going to be able to say whatever the Lord tells me to say. And so whenever he would go up to curse them, he would give a blessing rather than a curse to Israel. And of course, this made uh, Balak very angry at uh, Balaam, and uh, which ultimately leads to him riding his donkey. And, and you remember the donkey actually speaks to him because he comes up to this big cre uh, crevice or, 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 or I guess a, a path through two mountain sides, two cliffs. And the donkey stops dead in its tracks and won't go. And so Balaam starts whipping the donkey. And the Lord opens the donkey's mouth. And the donkey says, hey, why in the world are you beating me? I've never done this before. So basically, this is my paraphrase, there must be something wrong for me to do what I'm doing because I've never treated you like this before. And lo and behold, there was a uh, angel of the Lord there uh, guarding that place with a sword. And so again, that may be a reference to the sword that we find Jesus identifying himself as, the sword, a two-edged sword that is there. And, and later on, Balaam is ultimately killed by a sword. So again, that may be pointing to that sword as well that Jesus reverenced himself by. But here's what Balaam did. He couldn't curse Israel, but Balaam says, hey, to Balak and to all the people, he says, hey, here's what you need to do. In essence, you need to you need to invite the Israelites over, the Israelite men over, and you need to you know entice them with food and entice them with the women, and uh, ultimately you can you can you can draw them away, if you will, by enticing them and in, 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 into this uh, sexual immorality, marrying the women of um, that are not Jewish women, the, the women that would ultimately lead them into paganism, which worked. He, they enticed them and they intermarried with the people. And again, that, we don't have time to talk about this tonight, but it has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with their faithfulness to, to the Lord because the Lord told them not to marry these pagan women because these pagan women would lead them into idolatry. And But they didn't listen to the Lord and they ultimately were led into idolatry and eating, you know, partaking in all the festivals and all the things. And so that's the reference that the Lord is making here about Balaam. There, they have, there are some who have come into this church who are just like Balaam. They're trying to lure these Christians in a, in a subtle way to yield and give in to the culture, to give in just a little so you can get along uh, just a little bit in this society. And, and, and then he says, because we, we've, we've seen this next name already, right? The Nicolaitans, and I think it was Ephesus that the Lord talked about them, that they wouldn't tolerate the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Verse 15, not only did we see Balaam there trying to lure these people away, uh, we also see the Nicolaitans. He says, you, so, you, so also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, we talked about that with the, with the letter to Ephesus. And again, there's not clear detail on who the Nicolaitans are. But because of their close association here with Balaam, and the close association we see with uh, Balaam and the Nicolaitans, and we're going to read about this one called Jezebel later on, uh, that have come in to lead the people away. It seems that they have a similar kind of teaching. The, the Nicolaitans may have a little bit more of a Gnostic idea behind their teaching that, hey, you can separate the, the spiritual from the physical aspect of it uh, in that sense. And so... Uh, they have some who have accepted some of this teaching of the Nicolaitans. So you can see the difference between Ephesus and, and Pergamum. Ephesus, they wouldn't put up with those doctrines. They, they tested every, every teacher. They tested every spirit to make sure it was from the Lord. But the Pergamum, Pergamum Christians, like, while they were faithful to God's name, they had let these people come in uh, to the church. And the Lord 
tells them this is their uh this is what they need to repent from the ephesians it was about hey repent because you have left your first love here it's repent because you have not stood up against these false doctrines and that that's another implication of this text they have some who hold to these teachings not everybody held to them but they had some but everybody was implicit in the fact that they did nothing to rid the church of these false teaching. And so that ought to say something to you and I as believers that we ought to test every spirit to be sure that it is from the Lord. We ought to test every doctrine to be sure it is from the Lord. We ought to be like the Berean Jews who search out the scripture to make sure we know what the truth is what the truth actually is and not just take someone's word hook, line, and sinker. So like with me, don't take it hook, line, and sinker. You search out the word of God and you be sure that you know the truth. And again, that's another <clears throat> uh, another reason that doctrine is important. You know, we have an aversion to doctrine and theology in modern Christianity. We want to hear feel-good, you know, uh, sermons or, or feel-good speeches or motivational speeches when we come to church that, that, that make us feel better about ourselves. But we got to get we got to get much deeper than that so that we're not blown away by every wind of doctrine, that we have sound truth that we stand upon in God's Word. And the only way that I know how to do that is to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the books of the Bible as we, as we proclaim God's Word and proclaim the gospel of Christ. Doctrine does matter. Because doctrine impacts what we do, right? What we believe, we do. All else is religious talk. So if you want to do what is right, it's ortho, orthodoxy, uh, orthopraxy. Orthodoxy is right knowledge, right understanding. Orthopraxy is right living. So our orthodoxy impacts our orthopraxy. What we believe impacts what we do. So we must have sound Sound teaching and sound doctrine, which the church of Pergamum had failed to stand up for and stand upon. So the Lord says to them in verse 16, therefore repent. If not, he says, now who is he telling to repent? You know, we got an aversion to the word repent today in modern Christianity as well, especially when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, which boggles my mind because all of those who say you shouldn't use the word repent when it comes to the gospel, we don't need to repent when it comes to the gospel. Well, the very Savior who came into this world, God, the, God, the second person of the Trinity, the Lord Jesus Christ, in Matthew or Mark chapter one, when John the Baptist stepped off of the scene and Jesus Christ was ushered into the to the scene to the, the to the limelight of his ministry, if you will. The first thing out of Jesus' mouth to those who were listening was, repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. So if we don't need to use the word repent, why in the world would the Savior use the word repent when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ? And I know you know, a lot of people look at repentance as a work. Repentance is no more work than faith is a work. Faith is not a work. No, repentance is not a work. Repentance is a response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an exercising of our mind that we agree with God that we have wrong, that we are we have done wrong, that we are in error, that we are sinners, that we are guilty before God. We agree with him that, that we are what he claims us to be apart from Christ. And then we yield ourselves to the will of God and to the to the the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, that his way is the only way. And then we place our trust and our faith in him. And in this sense, the Lord's speaking to the church. Because even those who believe repentance is part of salvation, a lot of times we think that repentance is only for people who are lost and it has no place in the life of a Christian. Well, how many times have we seen it? We've seen it twice, uh, two letters to two churches, and the Lord has told both of those churches to repent uh, because of some place that they had erred in their life. So repentance is an ongoing aspect of our life. And again, it's, it's not just a matter of writing a list of your sins and repenting. It's a, it's a matter of agreeing with God confessing to God that you are in agreement with him, that what you have done, the way you have lived, the thing you have said or whatever is sin. 
and you're asking him to help you overcome that sinfulness in your life because Christ has already dealt with it as it relates to our salvation and we're we're still dragging this old flesh around with us that's prone to sinfulness and it's going to fall it's going to fall into sin and we need to go to God and acknowledge that and ask God to help us not to do that again to rid us to help us mortify the flesh as it were and so the Lord's calling this church to repent and then he says if not I will come soon like it is imminent that he's going to come if these if these Christians do not repent of these false teachers and false doctrines that they have they have adopted and let into uh, the sheepfold these wolves that have come in they need to repent uh, and deal with this situation if not the Lord is coming soon and then what is he going to do he is going to war against them and the them there. I think in particular has to do with those who are uh, espousing these doctrines of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, and he's going to war against them. In other words, he's going to bring judgment upon them with the sword of his mouth. And again, you know, it's this tie in with either Balaam and the sword that we saw in the, in the, the angel of the Lord, or the sword that ultimately struck Balaam down, but probably more broadly in this fact that, hey, the Roman government thinks it yields the sword of justice. God is saying, I am the one who yields the true sword of justice. And the place he's going to use that sword of justice in this moment is to chasten his people if they do not repent from this grievous sin that they have engaged in by letting these false teachers come into their fold. And so that leads us to the last verse in this uh, in this section. It's probably be the fastest um, video that we've we've had thus far. But verse seventeen, and again, all these letters are the same. We got the the introduction of the speaker with an identifying himself himself with part of that vision. Usually gives some kind of accommodation accommodation or commendation to uh, the church. There are a couple occasions where it's all bad, and there's an occasion when it's all good. But he usually has some good and some bad that he talks about. And then at the end of that, uh, he has this promise that he gives to these churches that are there. <clears throat> and so verse 17, again, this third one, I think, it, the, I think the next letter is going to change, if my memory serves me correctly. Right now, we have seen this exact same pattern. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he says, to the one who conquers or overcomes. And the next time, I think it's going to say, to the conqueror first, here's the promise. And then at the end, he, he who has an ear to hear what the church, or what the Spirit says to the church and let it hear. And we, we talked about that last week to some degree. And we won't, I'll try not to rehash all of these points every time, but just by way of reminder for somebody who wasn't listening last time or hadn't had an opportunity to listen last time. This idea of the, the ones who hear, I, I think that we could make an argument that John may be referring back to, uh, or Jesus through John, may be referring back to what he said in John chapter 6 in the epistle, that you know that there are those who the Lord is going to proclaim, there are some who will hear and there are some who will learn. And those who hear and learn are, are those who are drawn by the Father and given to the Son. And the Son will not let any of them fall away. He will raise them up in the last day. So there's this aspect of, hey, there are some who are going to hear. There are some who are not going to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But the implication is, if you hear, listen and pay attention to what I'm saying to you. And then he gives this promise to the one who conquers. And again, this is the same refrain in every single one of these letters. And Nikao, I think, if my memory serves me correctly, the, the Greek word that is there, we traced it through all three of these letters. But what you need to write down in your notes, if you haven't done this, and if you wasn't here on the first uh, letter to the church of Ephesus, uh, 1 John chapter 5. 
and read like the first five or six verses in there. And John uses this exact same term, this term of conquering or overcoming is the same Greek word. And we learn there those who are who overcome the world, those who are these conquerors or overcomers are those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So first John chapter five uh, is a good reference to go and find out what John is talking about in that uh, or what Jesus is saying when he when he gives this term to the one who conquers. And then he says, uh, here's the promise is three aspects of this promise. Uh, well, two aspects, really, with a little explanation at the bottom. The first is that he will give to him some of the hidden manna. And now, again, the, the hidden manna, um, that takes us back to the Old Testament again and takes us back to the Ark of the Covenant. And if you remember when the Lord brought uh, Israel out of Egypt, they were, they were a bunch of grumbling, complaining people. Uh, one, they didn't want to go into the promised land because they were too scared, right? So the Lord says, hey, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years until this generation dies off. Uh, there's only a couple of you guys going to be able to go in. The rest of you are going to die and not see the promised land. And so in their journeys in the promised land, you know, they were hungry and they were thirsty and they complained about the water and food. And so the Lord provided for them both water and food. And one of the ways he provided food for them was to bring in the morning, like dew, this manna that came from heaven, this sort of wafer that came from heaven to feed them. And they could, uh, you know, get enough for that day. And then, you know, they would eat it and be done. If they got more than enough for that day, it would rot on them. Uh, and worms and maggots and whatever would, would come into it. But anyway, the God provided this bread from heaven for them. And so God told Mo- Moses uh, to when he was uh, incorporating or building the, the temple, and uh, not a temple, the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, to take some of that manna and place it in a bowl and put it inside the Ark of the Covenant, this chest. And so in one sense, the quite literal, I guess, idea of this hidden manna is that bowl of manna that's in the Ark of the Covenant, wherever that Ark of the Covenant uh, has gone to in a physical sense. We don't know one knows where it's at um, because it ultimately disappeared. Uh, and But I think we see into the throne room of heaven uh, and catch a glimpse of... Um, ultimately where the true Ark of the Covenant is, if you will. But the Jewish mindset had this idea when it come to eschatology and the, and the coming of the Messiah. They had this idea that the Messiah would come, and once he came, and obviously in their mind he's going to establish his throne and uh, you know put his foot on the throat of the enemies of Israel and uh, rule and reign in, 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 with a rod of iron in that way. Um, but one of the things that they believed he was going to do was to bring back that hidden manna and provide that hidden manna, if you will, as a feast or festival for the, the Jewish people when he returned. Well, Jesus, I think, made a play on this idea in John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, if you'll remember, Jesus had fed the 5,000. And you're, if you remember the story, they, they had the group of people that are out there and Jesus was preaching and teaching to these people and uh, it was getting late and they were inquiring about food and Jesus kind of ultimately says, what do we have? And uh, they brought these uh, fish and these loaves and Jesus blessed it and they handed out all the, the food to all these people, like five fish or two fish and five loaves, I think it was two fish and five loaves and they handed it out to these people and they had more than enough. I think they, if my memory serves me correctly, we, had two, we got two feeding stories, one of the 5,000, one of the 4,000 that they collected, you know, like 12 baskets of leftovers. But either way, in both stories, they had, they had food left over from that small portion that was given to feed these people. So God, you know, in Christ performed a miracle in that sense just to, to provide this food for these people. 
And then I think it was the next day that the people came back to Jesus and Jesus made the statement that, hey, the only reason you come back to me is, is not because of the sign that I've done, but because of the bread that filled your belly. You know, you want this, this bread. And then Jesus goes into this dialogue linking this idea of bread to himself. And he says, you know, do you, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, you, do you only want this bread that can satisfy you in, in a very temporal kind of way that's going to, that's going to fade away? Jesus says, listen, Moses didn't provide for you the bread that came out of heaven. God provided you the bread that came out of heaven, talking about the manna. And then Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the one, the bread that came down from heaven. So in other words, even that is fulfilled in the person, Jesus Christ. And I, I can't help but think that's what in this, what is, what is in mind here that Jesus is saying to these people, I am the bread of life. I am the hidden man. And he, whoever, whoever eats this bread will never go hungry. He will have eternal life. And so what is Jesus saying when he's saying, I'm giving you this hidden manna? He's saying that I am, I am giving to you myself, if you will. So it's that intimate relationship that the Lord has given to these people. He's given himself. And it's just like with the woman at the well, right? This water, if you drink that water, you're going to thirst again. But I have this everlasting water, right? What is he talking about? He's talking about himself. And so I think that's what this reference to this manna speaks of. And so you see what the Lord's doing? He's writing to this Christian church, right? Probably Jews and Gentiles, probably. Probably more Gentiles than Jews, but probably Jews and Gentiles. But there's only one people of God. So you see what Jesus is doing? He's taking this idea that, that Jewish people would understand this manna from heaven. And he's saying, he's applying this to the church, the one people of God who are made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And he's saying that I am this bread of life. And if you are the one who overcome, in other words, you place your faith in me, you will have this bread of life, which I am is what Jesus is saying. And then he gives them the second aspect of this blessing that I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And of course, there's a lot of things to be said about this white stone. We, we know in one respect that some people tied in with this idea of the hidden manna, uh, bdellium, or if, I don't know how to pronounce this, B-D-E-L-L-I-U-M, bdellium, bdellium. Uh, a lot of people say that that manna that came from heaven looked like this, and this describes a white stone. So in one sense, they say, hey, this is what this is in reference to. There's another aspect of white stones or the use of stones in the Old Testament that has to do with the Urim and the Thummim, uh, where the priest would cast lots, if you will, in a way to determine God's will in a matter. And <coughs> the white one would ultimately be the one that led to an affirmative answer, I guess, from the Lord. <coughs> Some have even suggested and it makes a lot of sense to me um, that this has to do with a tessera stone. And a tessera stone was like a, uh, almost like two aspects of it. Some people describe it as as a token, if you will, like someone gave you a token or a ticket, we would understand, to get into a festival or into a carnival or whatever. They give you this ticket that gave you permission to enter in to a place. And so in that sense, you know, God is saying, hey, with this white stone, I'm giving you access to the kingdom of God, to this relationship with me. Another aspect of this tessera stone which is really compelling. But again, all these are just suggestions. It's really compelling 
that uh, it was a stone that had a name written on either side. One was the name, uh, it, it was between given between two parties in a covenant agreement. So you had the name of one person on one side, the name of another person on the other side of this stone. And what would happen in this covenant agreement, that once they made this covenant, the names were engraved on this stone, that they would break this stone in half, and the person, the person would give one half to one and one half to the other. And later on in life or whatever, when you come back together to validate that you had a part and parcel to this covenant, you would put the stones back together. Uh, so as if your stone matched in the break, that you would know that you had the piece that, that, uh, meant that was evidence that you were part and parcel in this covenant that you had with this person. I, I'm not for sure that that's exactly what it's talking about. What I, I do know is that white represents righteousness in the book of Revelation. We'll see that over and over again with the white robes, the white garments represents the idea of righteousness uh, there. And so in some sense, it's got to have something to do with, with righteousness, the righteousness of the saints. We do know that there are several occasions when there's this aspect of a new name that is given to the the people of God, a new a name that is written on the people of God, a name that is written on the thigh of the Savior, if you will. And, and we see this. We'll see this later in, in Revelation three, in chapter verse twelve, and then Revelation nineteen twelve uh, through sixteen. We'll see this idea, this new name. And so, so a lot of people look at this new name as this this transformation, this this regeneration, this being born again that takes place in the life of a believer. And, and we've seen evidence of that, right? Whenever Jacob was wrestling with God, if you remember that story, what did God do when that was all said and done? Ultimately, God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And go even even further back to to Abram, right? When God called Abram. Now, later on in, in this covenant process that God, uh, God made with Abram, he changed his name from Abram to Abraham, uh, the father of many, you know, nations, if you will, or multiple nations. And so we also see it with, with Saul, right? Remember Saul? What was Saul doing? Stephen had came out after the you know Pentecost, and uh, the Lord had poured out His Spirit on His His believers, and Stephen was one of the first uh, the proto deacons, if you will. He was one of those deacons. And hey, deacons, if you're listening, uh, what most what we read about these deacons, right? Like Stephen, what they do? They went out and proclaimed the gospel, and that was part of what they did. But they were he was proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, and once he come to the proclaiming this gospel, the people, uh, the Israelites were, you know, raised up against him. They dragged him to the, the, the center of the city, if you will. And they began to stone him to death. And there was a guy named Saul standing there who was a Jew and he was holding the coats of those who were stoning Stephen. And he was on his way to Damascus. And so he went on, got on the road to Damascus and the Lord arrested Saul on that journey to Damascus, brought him to his knees, blinded him, proclaimed from the heavens, why do you kick against the pricks, uh, kick against the goads? And Saul asked, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus Christ, the one whom you are persecuting. And ultimately he tells him to rise up and go uh, into the city. I've got something I need you to do. And Saul's name was changed from Saul to Paul. And so... There is this idea of a, a new name, right? And we even sing a song, right? We've got a new name written down in glory. Uh, so there's this idea of a transformation that takes place with this new name when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. So all of this, I think, ultimately points to this promise of the, of the personal, eternal relationship that we have with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because of our faith in him. <clears throat> and that's what the Lord is promising, that this will not only be uh, a hope, but it's going to be a, a present reality when he comes again to those who overcome. So I guess the question 
the questions that we ought to ask ourselves tonight as it relates to this text of Scripture in our context is first and foremost, are you, as we talked about in, in Romans this morning, are you in Christ? Have you come to faith in Christ? Because if you're not a Christian, there's only one there's only one thing for you, and that is the judgment of God. Because all of us are guilty, all of us in our flesh, apart from Christ, are hostile to God. All of us are enemies to God. All of us are in rebellion against God. And God is pouring, going to pour out his wrath on all of those who are in rebellion against him. And the only hope for us to, to stand in that day when God judges this world is that we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ dealt with our guilt on the cross of Calvary. Jesus Christ died for sin and condemned sin as our text said this morning in Romans. And Jesus Christ once for all paid the ultimate price and sacrifice. Once for all, he accomplished everything that was needed to appease God's wrath for sin. He became our propitiation. He appeased God's wrath for sin and he's covered our sin guilt with his own blood. So if we will but repent and believe, then we can find hope in Christ. God will impute, God has imputed our sin debt to Christ and in our faith in Christ, he imputes the righteousness of Christ to us. And that is our only hope in this life and in the life to come. So first and foremost, if you're not a Christian, you need to give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ right now because God has appointed a day of judgment and he has given that judgment to Jesus Christ to, to meet out in this world. And every one of us will stand before God in judgment. And then the second thing I think we need to ask for those of us who are, <coughs> excuse me, believers. Are we, how are we conforming to the spirit of this age that is around us? Because we're, we're not too much unlike Pergamum in these seven churches that we read about in our current culture as it relates to the pressure of the the spirit of this age right we don't have a king in the sense that rome had an emperor in america anyway but we do have a governmental authority the a governmental authority that is wielding its power and right now not just in america but around this world the government is wielding its authority and it is calling good evil and evil good and we see that today, and again, not to keep beating this dead horse, but it is the horse that stands in front of us in this moment. It is what is the temptation before the church today to cave to the culture about. It is about, again, bowing our knee to the culture. And the culture is pressing hard on us to do that. And there are some even in the church, right? Even in the church in general, even in the church today, there are some who are caving and who are calling others to cave in the name of love to the, the spirit of this age. So how are you and I as believers standing firm on God's word? Are we testing every doctrine? Are we standing firm on the truth? Are we willing to stand firm on the truth of God's word in spite of what the world is saying to us? Are we willing to stay faithful to the name of Christ and to the, to the truth that Christ has portrayed about who we are as human beings, about who he is as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings in this world? And that's a question each one of us need to ask ourselves today. Are we willing to endure patiently no matter the circumstances and stand firm on God's word? And I'm telling you, that's easy to say. But when the rubber meets the road, are we willing to do that? Whenever we are like Antipas in this text, who was probably burned uh, in a or boiled in a vat of oil because of his faith in Christ, are we willing, like the Lord said to Smyrna, hey, some of you are about to enter into tribulation for 10 days. Some of you are about to die. Some of you are going to be put in prison, and I need you to be faithful unto death. Are you to that point as a follower of Jesus Christ that you're willing to do that? I'm here to tell you, in American Christianity, 
I don't know how many of us are that, to that point. But if you look out around this world, if you look out around this world, there are Christians every day that have to live in light of that very truth. And there are many of them who give their life every day because of their faith in Christ. We need to ask ourselves, are we willing to stand firm on God's word no matter the cost? Because we know <coughs> that no matter what this world does to us, that we serve the King of kings and Lord of lords who has the true sword of justice, the two-edged sword that he will wield one day and he will rectify all wrongs and he will vindicate those who are faithful to his name. Well, hopefully this week that you will be faithful to the Lord as you go about your day as I pray that the Lord will help me be faithful to him as I go about my days in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ and being a witness in this world, being salt and light. And let us take courage from these letters to these churches who face this persecution in their day, face these acts of tribulation in their day, and let us be as faithful uh, as some of these were in, in our story. Father, we thank you for this time. And thank you for this opportunity. I pray, Lord, you'll go with us tonight. Let us have a restful night and let us be prepared for the journey that's ahead of us tomorrow. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.